Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. And yet it is, I think, true that it's hard sometimes. I think from a, from a very early age, we, as we're growing up as little ones, we tell our parents no when they want us to do something. We have our own will. We think we know what is best. We want what we want. And we choose to disobey because we, maybe we believe we're right, or maybe even we're consumed with what we want, regardless of right or wrong, best or not so good. And yet, when we get to the point in our lives maybe where we reverse the roles as parents who've lived much longer, who, who see and know how things uh, our child does has impact, affects them, and we can see so much more clearly than what is best for our, our child, whom we love, and, and why we do what we do. But, but we have to admit, I think, I know I have to admit way too often in life that we're still playing the role of the young child, and we, we don't want to obey our Heavenly Father. And, and you know what we're saying in effect is, God, I don't trust you. You say this is best. You say this is what I should do. But I'm not convinced that this is what is best for me. Maybe for someone else, maybe for those people, but is it truly best for me? And John addresses that, the Apostle John addresses that this morning as we walk through 1 John. We're in a series on 1 John, as mentioned earlier, so if you have your Bibles with you, open to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John is located near the very end of the New Testament, in other words, near the very end of the Bible. And we're in the second chapter. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have notes in the bulletins that you can pull out that have the scriptures on it as well as some places to, to take notes. Here's what John says. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. John says that the proof that we know God, that we have a relationship with him, is that we obey him. And we've got to remember there's a big difference between knowledge and relationship. I can know all about someone. I can, I can buy a biography on someone, or I can read their bio on Facebook, or I can, I can get all this information about someone, but it doesn't mean I know them. And it certainly doesn't mean that they know me. Jesus offers us a caution about this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's that obedience thing. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Some of the members of the, of the churches that John was writing 
who claimed that they had special knowledge about God, that they, they had this special understanding. But John is warning them, and, and he's, he's, frankly, he's warning us as well today, that knowledge doesn't stack up to relationship. He says that we show that we know God, not just know about him, when we obey his commandments, we keep his commandments, when we obey. Unfortunately, it's, it's so easy for some of us to get caught up in using the, the lingo of the Christian faith, the Christian slogans, and we, we know the language, we've heard it, we can repeat it easily. We can say all the right things. In fact, we can say all the right things to the degree that we actually begin to fool ourselves so that the slogans and knowledge become a substitute for a real relationship with God. Just because we can talk the talk doesn't mean we can walk the walk. So John offers us three tests of, of genuine spiritual life. Genuine, not, not phony. In, in verses 4, 6, and 9 in chapter 2 this morning. And each of them begin with a saying, whoever says, and then he repeats one of the claims that obviously certain members of these churches he's, he's writing to are making and, and, and claiming them. And he tells us then the problem with these claims. So the very first test of genuine faith, John says, is in fact obedience. He begins in verse four saying, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. John says the person who makes the claim that they, they really know God, that they, they have a deep and abiding relationship with him, that they, they say they trust him and yet they refuse to obey him, John says that's a lie and they are liars. I mean, that's, that's pretty strong language. That's not just saying, well, you know, you, you may not be right about that. He's saying, you're a liar. I mean, think about it. if somebody comes up and calls you a liar. Kind of gets your hackles up, doesn't it? it, kinda, it it's kind of in your face. But John is serious about this because this is, this is important. These people are, are, are fooling themselves. He says that in, in failing to obey, the, the truth is in fact missing in them. If you look at the Gospel of John, which he wrote a few years earlier, John uses the word truth to describe Jesus. He says he is the way, the truth, and the life. He uses to describe the Holy Spirit and the Word. And so when he says the truth is not in them, what he's telling his readers is that people who don't obey God and his commandments don't have God in them, that they are disconnected from God, regardless of what they claim. Jesus' own words, he says, this person can say, Lord, Lord. In other words, you can call him out by name. You can shout his name. You can even walk into his presence. You can say all the right words, all the right slogans. But Jesus will deny knowing them and cast them out forever if it's a show. And that's scary. In fact, that ought to, that ought to warn us of the danger of playing at Christianity of making a game out of it, of thinking we can fool some people, of I don't have to really commit, I don't have to really spend any time in this, I can just kind of get by. And, and Jesus is saying, I'd be real careful about that. 
Because someday when I return, and you won't know when I return, but I will return suddenly. You come up to me and you say, Lord, Lord, but your life doesn't reflect that I am Lord, and Lord means in charge, then I'm going to say I never knew you. But what about the person who really is seeking to obey God? Uh, in, the, in the original Greek here, the sense here is of someone who continues over and over again to try, strive to obey. And of course, no one can keep God's word perfectly, but God always looks at the heart of us, at the part of any person. And, and so the issue is, do, do I want to? Am I continually striving to? Do I want to do the will of God through the help of the Holy Spirit? Do I want to do that, or, or do I just say I do, and I do it when it's convenient? But the result of those, this ongoing effort of striving to be faithful, striving to obey, seeking to do the right thing, John says, is that the love of God is perfected in us. Now, perfected doesn't, here, this is, this is where sometimes earlier translations pick up a word and keep using it. The word perfected here doesn't mean perfect. I know that sounds a little strange. Um, at least not in the sense of like, Everything is perfect. There's no error, no, no problems. It means perfect in this sense. The Greek word is teleos. It means something that fulfills its created purpose. It is perfect for the job, in other words. It, it, your chairs are perfect for enabling you to sit comfortably for a period of time. So John says obedience to God helps us become more and more who we were created to be from the very beginning, someone whom the love of God increasingly rules so that we love God, that's the vertical, and we love our neighbor, that's the horizontal, that's the, the great commandment to love God and love your neighbor with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this is something, this is, this is, this is really important. I, I really want you to get this. John says that when our desire is to obey God, and, and we're continually trying to do that. When we choose to trust him, when we try to obey him, e even when we don't understand everything, even when we don't agree with everything, when, when we, changing metaphors, when we as a child choose to obey our parents, even when it's not what we want to do, we've taken an important step of growing spiritually, of becoming more spiritually mature. In other words, a big way that you and I grow spiritually, grow more and more, is to obey God. The very acts of obedience, when that's our motivation. Not, not acts out of guilt, not acts out of trying to fool somebody, but acts out of obedience and out of desire to please God enables God then to grow us spiritually. Obedience isn't simply to avoid punishment. It is to do the will of God. It's to say, God, I believe you know what is best. I believe that your will is perfect, and I want to strive for that. Yes, I will fall short of that at times. All of us fall short of the glory of God. But I am seeking to do that, and I need you. I need your spirit in me to help me do that more and more. And the testimony of Scripture of John is that in that, in that sense we then are he is transforming us to become more and more like Jesus, to become, as we like to say here at Gateway, fully devoted followers of Christ. So obedience is the, the first test of genuine faith. Am I seeking, really seeking to obey? 
John moves on then to a second one in in the latter part of verse 5. He says, by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And And the point here is, am I trying to live as Jesus lived? Day in and day out. The word abides is a term Jesus really liked. He, he used it in his gospel a number of times. Abide in me and I will abide in you. The, 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 the tree and the, and the vine, they abide in each other. And it doesn't simply mean to imitate. It, it means someone who, can, who is continually trying to stay connected to God. And immersed in God. Because they desire to do that and they want to obey him. John is holding up the earthly life of Jesus as as the perfect model for us of someone who stayed connected to and obeyed God, even even to the point of death on a cross. He was so connected, and he wants to help us put to death our own selfish desires that rob us of life. He uses the image of of walk here not to mean occasional obedience, but, but seeking to obey him each day all throughout our day. In other words, this Christian journey is not something for an hour on Sunday where you can check the box and go home and say, I've done my duty. It is a lifestyle of how I live, not a religion of things just that I do. Then as John moves into verse 70, he makes it, a personal, he makes it kind of personal. He says, beloved, that's a phrase he loves to use throughout, uh, those, I, those I love, and, and gives us the second test of genuine faith is that we love as Christ loved. He says, beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment, it is the word that you've heard at the same time. It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He's saying, hey, this love thing is not a new invention. In fact, it's, it's a command that has been around from the, from the beginning. If we go all the way back into the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus, and I'm not going to even ask you how many of you for which Leviticus is your favorite book, but there is some great, important stuff in Leviticus. And when Jesus says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor, he's quoting something that's already 1,500 years old. In Leviticus 19.18, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's God saying that. So it, it was old. But Jesus gives it a new form in his coming as the Christ, showing us this self-giving love, this sacrificial love that proved itself on the cross. And the good news is when we commit our life to him, The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes to live in you and me and seeks to make this love possible in us too, to drive out the darkness and lead us to the dawning of a new day in how we live our lives. John then moves to a third test of genuine spiritual faith, and that is for us to love those that it's hard to love. And again, there's a warning here of not having a real relationship with God. He says, verse 9, Whoever says he is in the light, in other words, I'm, I'm seeking God, I'm trying to follow Jesus, and hates his brother, is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John is calling members of his churches to love as Christ had loved. 
And, and he grounds it, not in some kind of fuzzy language of just, oh, it's love, it's, we, we need to love everybody. He, he puts it very specific about loving individuals around them, and particularly those you disagree with, those you don't like, those you hate, and perhaps those even who hate you. And, and certainly he's talking to those in the church there that, that disagree with him, but many scholars think he's also probably talking to those who agree with him, who are getting upset because there are some who are trying to create problems in the church, who disagree with their leader, John, who was, has been with them from the very start. And, and scholars think he's trying to say to them, don't hate these who are spouting things that aren't right. Because you are called to live as Jesus lived. You are called to love even those for whom it might make sense to hate. You do not have permission to hate even those who are challenging my leadership. See, love only means something when it's, it's hard and it's tested. Anybody can love someone who loves you back. Anybody can love someone who's nice to you. Anybody can love a good boss, a good coworker. A good kid, but it's hard when they aren't those things. And I'm not, I'm not justifying their actions. I'm not saying that they, they aren't mean and hateful to you, okay? I'm not saying that, nor is John. But the point is, how do we respond back? And, and he is calling us to reach beyond ourselves to God himself to love someone we don't want to love, that it's not in our nature, or they have hurt us, or they've done things to us. Loving someone you like is easy. But this is a whole different thing. Loving those we have a reason to hate is a sign, he says, that, that Christ is in them, and, and they are abiding in the light rather than in the darkness, and that they're trusting God and relying on him to be able to love when it's not within themselves to do it. Now, I know this sounds hard because there's no one in this room that hasn't had somebody who's, who's messed with us, who's gotten us angry, who has hurt us, who has hurt us to the bone. There's some of you, you've had a loved one leave you. There's some of you, you've seen people do horrible things to people you care about or say terrible things. And, and all this is not justifying what they did, okay? Hear this, not justifying what they did, the question is, how are you going to live? Are you going to sink down to their level? Are you going to become like them? Or are you going to go the high road? Are you going to follow Jesus? Who on the cross, they spit on him and they said all these things and he said, Father, forgive them. That sounds crazy, isn't it? I mean, you want to get even, don't we? I loved the TV show back in the early 90s called The Equalizer. You want, we love it for somebody to get equal. But does it ultimately make the situation better? Does it make us better? And that's the point here. This, isn't, this is about transforming us and transforming those around us. And John is clear that if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, then we obey God to love our neighbors, even when they don't love us, even when they hate us, because our efforts to obey are proof that we are seeking to trust God. And again, John says this very process of loving actually grows us spiritually, increasingly enabling us to love 
those who are not lovable. And it, though it very well may change the one we seek to love, even if they don't love us back. Our efforts to love leads to, to God transforming us more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus himself. See, he's telling us obedience. Obedience is, is part of how God grows us. Even when they are hateful to you and me. Now, at this point, John's been writing this to this whole church, and then the, the, the bulk of the people agree with him, but there's some who don't. And he wants to, he does kind of a pause at this point in verses 12 to 14 to give his faithful readers some assurance that, that their relationships with God are, matter. And, and as scholars look at these verses, they see that, that the way they were written in the, in the original manuscript, in the early manuscripts, are are styles of poetry, okay? And when you, when you see poetry, this is kind of like, how do you interpret when you read stuff in the Bible? If it is text, if it's prose, you interpret it one way. It's, it tends to be more tr- um, literal. But when you see poetry, poetry tends to be more symbolic. And so when you see that style, you know then that you have to start looking not just at the surface meaning of the words, but going deeper into perhaps more of what's being said. So we turn to to verse 12, where John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, I found this in a commentary, and so I put it on the screen. This is the same basic content, but it's divided up into two groupings. And if you kind of notice, he begins verse 12, I am writing to you. And then near the end of verse 13, he says, I write to you. And he uses three different sets in each group, little children, fathers, young men, children, fathers, young men. He follows each of them with a because. And then he says to children, your sins are forgiven. Fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. Young men, you have overcome the evil one. Back to children, you know the father. Fathers, you know him from the beginning, almost verbatim. And young men, you are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And as we look at this, this this symbolic nature jumps through. What scholars know is that John tends to use the word children not to talk so much about little ones, but to talk about members of his churches. He was their spiritual father. He is well up in his, in, in his years, maybe 70s, 80s, maybe even close to 90. He's an, he's an elderly man. And these are churches he started. These are people who have trusted to him. And he, he sees himself as his, their spiritual father in the faith. And so he calls them children, both in in his gospel as well in these letters. So when he talks to little children, he's talking to all of them. So he's really only talking to two specific groups as he breaks it down. He's talking to fathers, and most scholars think what he's talking to there are those who are more spiritually mature, both men and women, because we've got some symbolism going here. And when he talks to young men, he's talking to those who are new to the faith, who are young in the faith, both men and women, all right? So there's a little bit of symbolism at work to try to, and when you look at the structure, some of the things become a little more apparent. So to the little children, meaning all the faithful, 
he assures them that their sins are forgiven and they know the Father. And in the, the, the verbs here are in what's called the perfect tense. And I know some of you were hoping that you left English behind forever. But the perfect tense just simply means it's, it's something that happens and is ongoing. It's not just a one-time event. So this is indicating these are ongoing truths, that they continue to be true, that they have an ongoing relationship with their father as their children, and they can take confidence in that. To the fathers, the, the more mature in the faith, he assures them twice that they can rely on their experiences of their heavenly father. They can trust what they've experienced, how they've seen God faithful time and time again in the past to help them stand firm as they face the future. Younger ones don't have that experience. They're new. They haven't experienced God. But for those who have done that, they have a confidence, and he wants them to use that as an anchor for the community. Likewise, to the young men, John understands they're facing struggles as they are trying to figure some of this stuff out, live out their faith in the world around them. And yet he has seen them be strong. He has seen them overcome the evil one through their seeking God. And he has seen their passion, their commitment, their excitement for the faith. And he wants to affirm that, that has helped them overcome the evil one. And again, it's in the perfect tense. It continues to be true. That, that, they are, that, that what has happened, the defeat of, of, of Satan occurred on the cross and is still true for them today. And his victory, Christ's victory, is their victory. And they can be confident in that. He's telling them that through Christ the battle's been won. It is, it's a fact. And they can find hope and assurance in that. And so what we see here is a picture of, you know, a lot of times churches may be more of one age or another age, or some people say, well, we want just the young people, or we're going we're gonna to aim for the more mature. And John here is, is acknowledging a church of wide breath that is good. He's affirming it, that both the mature in faith and the younger in faith have a lot to offer the community of faith, that both need to be appreciated, and both are needed. The more mature are needed to, to help people know when stuff is happening, that God has been faithful in the past, not just that we can read it about in the Bible, but because we've experienced it. And some of these men and women who are the, the anchors of the faith can, can provide that assurance. At the same time, as we've been in the faith for a while, for some who are more mature, there can be a tendency to lose some of the passion. And so he says, look to these, these people who are in the battle right now. They are passionate about it, and we need them too. It's not an either or. It's a both and. We need the, the, the history and the, and the confidence of, of these prior experiences along with the passion that of, of a faith revitalized or new that is excited, that both of these together create God's community of faith. Both of them are needed. You can't say, we don't need those guys or we don't want them. He's affirming all of it. And with that reassurance, he then turns to a final warning in this passage. Verse 15, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the Father, the love of the Father is not in him. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the, the desires of the flesh and, and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John shows us that every one of us have two choices, every human being, including those of us in the church. Either, either we, we love the Father, God the Father, or we love the world. And when John uses the world, 
He's not talking about the physical creation. He's talking because he, he, he believes it's good, and it gets affirmed throughout Scripture. He's talking about the world of sin that is opposed to God, a world under the control of Satan, a world that prefers darkness to light, that doesn't want God's ways, that seeks to, to battle against it. And he's challenging his readers not to become infatuated with these worldly values as other people get stuff, you know, able to buy more stuff than you are or have this power or this control or gain this stature or this status in life. Those things sometimes become ends in themselves to us. We want to climb the ladder of success because we think if I get that next promotion, I'll get the respect I deserve. If I buy the right house, I'll have what I need for people to look up to me or for me to feel good about myself. And we find all of these things around us, these worldly things that aren't inherently bad, but are destructive when they become the focus of our lives. And, and they cannot ultimately satisfy or lead us, further, lead us to light, but instead lead us to darkness. He's telling us, focusing on things that we selfishly desire, that, that often seek to elevate us over others, is not from God, but from Satan. And Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And and Jesus, along with John, are telling us that there is really a choice at work here. And, And refusing to choose typically takes us down a darker path, away from the path of light. It doesn't just happen. If you don't choose, you almost all of us almost always will be drawn to the dark instead of to the light. We have to be intentional each day of choosing God and his light. And, and John says they're, they're, this is actually the wiser choice anyway because ultimately these worldly values, these passions don't last. They seem so important to us at the time. They seem like i got to have that. I, I need that. But if we hitch our wagons to those values, we discover that we have bet on a losing race. The values and things of God, the the intentional obedience to God, enable us to gain eternity with him. You know, I have to tell you, I have never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. I mean, you can't take it with you. It may seem like a big deal. It may seem like it is so important, like it matters so much. You know, if I just had that new TV, and after about three weeks, I start thinking, well, it was good, but now I need some more channels, or now I need surround sound, or I need this. Because whatever we want, it may satisfy for a time, but ultimately, it's not, we weren't created to be satisfied for those, with those things. Now, it doesn't say they're wrong to have. It doesn't say they're wrong to enjoy. What he says is, is when we make those things our focus, when we, we, those drive our lives, we are seeking after worldly things that, that cannot satisfy. And we keep putting our emphasis on those things. God's values get pushed further and further out of our lives. We walk more and more in darkness, and the love of the Father is not in us. There's a fellow who wanted to take it with him. And so he, he put his, a lot of his wealth in, in, a, in a suitcase. And he went and he put it up in his attic over his, over his bedroom because he felt like if I die in my sleep, 
then when I rise up to heaven, I'll grab the suitcase and take it with me. He thought it was brilliant. Well, sure enough, the day came and he died in his sleep. And it was sad and, and, you know, the wife had all this stuff to do. And a couple weeks later, she's getting around now to kind of sorting through some of his stuff. And, And she's up in the attic and she finds this suitcase and it's a surprise to her. And she opens it up and and there was all this money, all this wealth. And she looked at it for a moment. She said, darn, I knew he should have put it in the, in the basement. <laughs> Jim Carrey, the actor, said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. We have bought so often into a lie that sometimes we don't even see it anymore unless we hold our lives up to the light of Christ and Scripture. And John wants us to realize this, that the value and ways of our world, though they promise a lot, ultimately fail to deliver. Like a child in the midst of, of seeing what they want, we, we, we fail to realize that those self-serving desires don't ultimately satisfy. And so we need a parent. We need someone who is wiser, who's more grounded in the faith, who's got experience, who's been around for a time like our Heavenly Father. To see the big picture, to know what's best for us, and steer us in the right direction. And throughout the Bible, God calls us to these right ways, to to the way of sacrificial love. And and in Jesus, he uniquely showed us this, especially going so far as to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus said greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Paul wrote to the Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And as we we obey him, as we seek with his help to sacrificially love those around us and focus less on ourselves, the love of the Father is in us and grows in us, enabling us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed more and more so that this lifestyle of God, not these rules, this lifestyle of God becomes more and more natural to us and appealing. If my focus is on these worldly values, then quite honestly, it's really hard to see anything good in what John is saying here. But if I choose to trust Jesus Christ and obey God's word, in spite of maybe what I feel, God's Spirit will transform my desires and aspirations increasingly to align with His, to change how I even see all this. That's why we emphasize here that the first step any of us who, who want to see our lives changed is, has to involve committing our life to Jesus Christ, to find one who forgives us, who has power greater than our own and wisdom beyond our own, to enable us to live our lives so that he can save us from sin and death. But, but we call him not only Savior, but also Lord, our leader, our master, 
to guide us and, and teach us and, and help us trust him to increasingly transform us as we follow him, as we obey him. And maybe that's a commitment you need to make today. Our prayer team in just a moment is going to be down here, and they would love to talk with you about that. We're going to be offering baptisms this afternoon at 5 o'clock right out in our coffee shop. And it's an opportunity to, to mark who you are and what you believe. But it is also a sign of obedience. For Jesus himself said, go and baptize. And so we, we are baptized in obedience. So even if you don't see the point, if you have trusted your life to Christ, your obedience matters in your relationship with him. We have a class right after the service down in the Life Center, and they'll talk to you about that if you want to learn more. I've got to tell you, when I graduated from college, I set a lot of really what I would call very worldly values for myself. I wanted to be making 100 grand. Within five years, I wanted to be making 100 grand. I wanted to have a sports car. I wanted to have a bass boat. And I really wanted a Jeep to pull the bass boat. I wanted my own house. And I wanted a Labrador retriever. And within two, two and a half years, I had most of that. I mean, outwardly, my life was successful. And Yet, I wasn't all that interested in trusting God. Now, I grew up in the church. Hear me. Um, I had heard everything. But, but for so much of it, me, it was stuff. And I got caught up in seeing other people start making it and getting ahead. And why can't I have that? And I want it. I want it now. And I, I got caught up in that. And... and Obeying God was not at the top of my list. Believing that he existed, yeah. I believed in him. But I didn't always believe him. And my life reflected that. It wasn't all it could be. Those things I wanted, they weren't bad things, but they would make me look good, I thought, or make me happy, I thought. But I know now that they, they would never follow me to heaven. At some point, I, I did fully commit my life to Christ. I began trying to trust him in everything, trying to be obedient, even when it was hard, when it, when it went against maybe what my boss wanted me to do or some of these kinds of things. And over time, I, I began to realize that, that as I was being obedient, God was actually changing my heart so that my obedience was was becoming something increasingly I wanted to do. I liked what I was experiencing. And over months and years, those old goals kind of dropped by the wayside. They became less and less important. It wasn't that I didn't then or I don't still today appreciate them. I'd still love to have a bass boat. You know, I mean, it's not like that's gone away, but, but that's not the purpose of my life. That's not where I'm focused. My focus is on Jesus Christ. I found that my goals now, I find they're more about, about helping others discover the love of God and the difference it makes in a life, of that, that you can be forgiven of your sins and, and find freedom in this life to not be confined by the expectations 
of those around you, of, of, of the, the consumer culture that, that is driving so much of what we do, and that the, I find a, a peace in my life and a hope that even as I, I come up against adversity in life, that adversity doesn't have the final word because ultimately my hope is in him. And no matter what happens in this life, whether it's 60 years or 80 years or even 100 years, it pales with eternity with Jesus Christ. What's cool is that God's promises can do that in each and every one of us as we give our lives to him. We find purpose and meaning beyond, beyond the values of this world forever. But to do that, we do have to trust and obey. We have to not only talk the talk, we have to walk the walk. And I would tell you today that for every one of us, including myself, that's the biggest challenge we face, is to walk the walk. We know the words. We know the slogans. But will we trust them? Our small groups this week, they'll be talking more about that. Um, we have a study guide that's in, um, on our Find It page. Or if you want to just look at it on your own, feel free to download it. I want to encourage you because you can walk out of here, and if you don't try to do anything different, nothing will be different. If you don't try to obey, if you think that's a good idea and I ought to look into it, I guarantee you, you won't. None of us do. We have to be intentional. We have to work at it. But the good news is God offers us hope in that and eternity. Heavenly Father, thank you that your grace is more than enough, that you love us in spite of our failings, and that you call us to abundant life. And yet we don't experience that by playing at Christianity, but by committing to Jesus Christ day in, day out. Father, I suspect there are many of us in this room who have, at one point or another, maybe right now, have played at Christian faith, who can talk the talk, but don't really walk the walk. Father, help us, through your spirit, to change that, to trust you, to obey, even when we don't quite get it, even when it's hard, even when it means loving our enemies, even when it means giving of our time or our resources, even when it means spending time in your word. Father, help us. And in that, define your life, eternal life, now and forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our prayer team will be down here. If you're a guest today, we'd love to meet you. I'll be out here and we'd love to say hello. God bless you. See you next week. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.